What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and today I'm going to be joined by another person with an awesome first name, Sean Moran. Sean is a partner at the law firm of Vincent & Elkins, where he specializes in tax and renewables. Tax incentives like the production tax credit and the investment tax credit have had a massive impact on the growth of renewables, but the possibility of direct pay also looms on the horizon. So Sean is here to dive into what lies ahead for that corner of the industry, particularly as projects expand into the realm of offshore wind. I hope you all got a chance to listen to our last episode featuring John Powers from Extensible Energy and Cowflex Hub. John shared a lot of great insights about load flexibility and technologies being deployed to help commercial buildings reduce their energy consumption and save business owners lots of money. Looking ahead on the schedule, well, looking ahead, we're taking a break for the holidays. This is the last episode of the show for this year, but we're already planning some excellent episodes for 2022. So I can't wait to see you again on the other side of the new year. But for now, I'll be right back with my conversation with Sean Moran from Vincent & Elkins. Okay, everyone, thank you for joining me today. My guest is Sean Moran from Vincent & Elkins. Sean, how are you doing today? I am good, Sean. <laughs> how are you? We're going to have a lot of fun today, Sean, talking to Sean here. Uh, don't you think so, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So you're uh, one of the tax gurus, obviously, at Vincent Elkins. You know, I'm bringing you in. I want to ask you a few questions about, you know, what the renewable space looks like right now. But first of all, I understand that you recently moved from California to Austin. So my first really, really important question is, how's the surf in Austin? The, the, the surf in Austin is, is uh, something to be desired, you know, uh, as opposed to California. And it was a great couple of years in California, actually. The golf scene in uh, Austin is is quite tremendous. So uh, there's been a, a segue from uh, my surfboard to my golf clubs just to have something to do outside of the office. One other question for you, though. So what's your preference between Southern California Mexican food and Texas barbecue? Do you have an allegiance to one or the other? So my wife is uh, born and raised in, in Texas. So uh, there's, there's we've had Tex-Mex kind of as, as a family uh cuisine for quite some time. So uh, I, I was quite accustomed to it and expecting it. And we've been enjoying it. It's hard to really pick any uh, winner there. I gotcha. All righty. So uh, getting on to the renewables conversation at hand here, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, wind uh, and particularly a little bit of offshore wind. So let's just get right into it. You know, the Biden administration has set a goal of having 30 gigs of offshore wind by 2030. Uh, from where you're sitting, you know, do you think we're going to get there? Yeah, honestly, it's pretty ambitious. You know, I probably should back up a little, Sean, kind of when we first started doing wind, it was thought to be ambitious as well onshore. You know, the first transactions we did were back in 2002, 2003, took a year to get the first transaction closed in Sweetwater, Texas, previously known uh, as the rattlesnake capital of the world. And that was kind of like groundbreaking. And once we got the first transaction closed, they actually followed quickly thereafter. Um, that was in Texas. Then we were in Oklahoma, we were in New, New Mexico, California opened up, Oregon. Then we kind of uh, segued to the East Coast, ended up doing wind transactions on land over 40 states. So once it got started, it, it really went in earnest. We have a long way to go onshore to achieve kind of any of the goals with respect to carbon neutrality, but it's, it's work in progress and, and people at least understand it. Well, then looking back, what lessons from you know, the early days of onshore? What were the early stumbling blocks that you might see offshore is confronting right now? You know, what are the biggest challenges? It sounds like once you get some momentum, then it can kind of get going. But 
What's in the way of that momentum? I mean, honestly, it was, it was kind of the things you would expect. It was the land siding, understanding kind of the regulatory regime kind of within the localities that we're sitting in. On the tax side, it took a long time for folks to come to grips with kind of the structures that were being proposed and the risks involved with investing in, in, in wind onshore. So that was a work in progress. We probably brought 12 or 15 new investors into kind of wind, just the main investors. There was a lot of folks kind of sitting on the periphery as well. And that was an education process, not only with the internal kind of credit committees, just in terms of understanding kind of investment in a wind asset, kind of an intermittent kind of performing asset, how are we going to obtain our returns? There was a lot of analysis that needed to kind of be entered into kind of with respect to the modeling and and kind of just understanding sensitivities, I guess, long story short. We also had to bring along this area of the tax law, you know, was, was relatively unchartered, you know, so we needed to kind of educate um, both the commercial folks just in terms of what and what they could not do, but also the inside tax lawyers at many of the large institutions to educate them kind of on what the issues were, you know, how to analyze your way through them. And the obvious one was, what is it? it it's, a production tax credit is how the U.S. government has kind of subsidized wind for a long time. What is a production tax credit? Is that a piece of cash? Is it a tax item? What, what is it? Can you count it? Count it? in terms of your, your economic substance and your pre-tax return and that type of thing. That was like a novel issue at the time. Now it's kind of old news. Back then, required a lot of work to kind of educate folks and get them comfortable. Okay. Yeah, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about you know the ITCs and the, and the PTCs and direct pay and things like that a little bit later. But first, the Interior Department recently rolled out its plan for kind of building out you know offshore wind in the U.S. It had stuff on the Atlantic coast and the Gulf of Mexico, Pacific coast. Which of those locations, from a legal perspective, do you think will be you know, easiest to start standing up turbines? Let's talk about the East Coast first. On the East Coast, there's, as, as you're pointing out, right, 30 gigawatts of kind of interest. And that's even on the low side, I would have thought, just in terms of kind of the capacity. The issues with respect to kind of offshore on the East Coast are... Not so much the issues that we've struggled with kind of in the United States, although there's some parallels, they more have to do with kind of where, where can the facility be sited and, and kind of the permitting process with kind of the federal government and the BOEM, um, which is a, just generally a long process and, and requires quite a bit of environmental and, and practical kind of taking into account the stakeholders' issues with respect to a siting. There's issues with respect to kind of how the facility is built kind of in, in terms of getting materials out to wherever the facility is sited. And that's the Jones Act kind of obviously kind of with respect to what's permissible in, in, in terms of kind of delivering and building the facility. And then once you kind of get by even those challenges, then you have how do we get the power back onshore? So the early movers have a terrific advantage just in terms of identifying um, interconnects onshore that are capable of taking the power that's being produced by the facility. So if you take the vineyard as an example, that is a transaction involving a developer that's kind of an early mover with respect to kind of obtaining the rights to interconnect and accessing substations on Cape Cod, right? 
So there's already an infrastructure available to, to move the power onshore and then either provide kind of power to kind of locally Cape Cod, or there's even the infrastructure to get it to Boston and the surrounding areas, say. That's the early mover. Now, if we have, you know, 10 more transactions following that, the transmission issue becomes far more challenging. Um, that substation is not capable of, of obtaining that much power. So significant upgrades are required. Infrastructure needs to be built, not only, you know, to kind of receive the power onshore, let's just say on the Cape, but also the infrastructure required to build, uh, to provide transmission lines to kind of Boston and the surrounding areas. So those are kind of daunting at the moment in, in terms of kind of the, the meaningful large development, something that's just not obvious with respect to kind of just wind power facilities as, as we normally think about it. I mean, if you go back to kind of the theory of kind of offshore wind, let's cite it near large populations so that we, we don't have to worry about the transmission kind of coming from remote areas uh, where, where wind facilities are normally sited. That's only so good as kind of you managing kind of process with respect to getting transmission onshore. So Massachusetts, that's one example with, with Vineyard, right? If you go to New York, it's at least at the moment, the early movers are accessing kind of substations and interconnects on Long Island. So there again, moving the power from Long Island, kind of if you build out to kind of the magnitude in, in which you're thinking into the city and stuff like that, again, significant infrastructure. The two things that Massachusetts and New York have going for it is it's within the state in a sense, and they can decide just in terms of what's fair in terms of kind of who shares the burden of the cost with respect to kind of all of these upgrades that would be required. Now, if you get down the coast a little and you're dealing with New Jersey and Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, it becomes far more challenging because now you're crossing state lines and you have parties that are not sure that they're benefiting from kind of the delivery of the power and who should be bearing the cost of kind of these, these large upgrades. That's kind of on the state level, if you will, Sean. The federal, at the moment, does not have the ability to kind of impose its will with respect to requiring kind of transmission, particularly as it relates to crossing state lines and things like that. Mike Wigmore just published an article on that um, on our website, uh, which is terrific just in terms of outlining kind of where things sit with the states and the issues with respect to kind of the federal government and kind of the current law as it exists, the flaws in the current law what really needs to kind of occur on a go forward basis to, you know, have success here. Okay. And we'll be sure to put the, a link to that paper from Mike in the show notes for this episode. So it sounds like you're talking about the, you know, the build out of a lot of infrastructure and we've got the build back better legislation, you know, working its way through Capitol Hill right now. So which aspects of that do you see having the biggest impact on renewables? So the way folks have been thinking about kind of offshore uh, for a while now, given kind of the significant cost is to take advantage of the investment tax credit, right? Which is an upfront credit available on, on kind of the qualifying assets. And just to pause on that slightly for a moment, the allocation of within asset classes is relevant and not all of kind of a wind facility that's offshore will qualify for the, the ITC um, as it might onshore. This is just because of all that infrastructure we've been talking about, there'll be an allocation to non-qualifying assets. 
there's proposals to suggest that those should be included, but that's not quite on the books yet, or nor is any of this. So anyway, so you've got your ITC as your base. Where this is, it's going to be a challenge with the offshore, just given the size of these deals and the cost involved. That is a lot of tax credit for folks, for investors to put on their tax return, right? So you can't just have one fellow on a billion dollar facility having $300 million of tax credits. They probably don't have the capacity and they probably don't have the interest to have such a large investment just in, in one particular transaction. It's not diversified within multiple transactions, diversifying risk, diversifying kind of who the offtaker is, uh, the locality with respect to casualties, all, all that type of thing. Probably the most important provision in, in the new proposed legislation has to do with direct pay and the fact that you can, you don't need to use somebody's tax return. You do in, in the sense that it's kind of a, a deemed payment of a tax and, and the refund thereof you know, as you would on your own return, but to, to not have to kind of go out and, and kind of exhaust the tax equity community with this many transactions, with this large credit, to be able to kind of turn to direct pay could be just a game changer entirely with the success of kind of the build out. Real quick, just jump in there. So so a lot of our listeners aren't experts on, on the tax side of it, just, you know, to be square. So what are the basics of how the ITCs and, and PTCs work and, and you know why the direct pay would be so much, sounds like more beneficial? Uh, good question. The, so the investment tax credit, it, it's come and gone in the tax code since the Kennedy administration type of thing. It's expired a bunch of times. It's back in now. Is a credit against your tax on the day a facility is placed in service. So, and the credit is 30% of kind of the qualifying kind of assets. So billion dollar facility, let's assume that, you know, 800 million qualifies for the ITC. You put on your tax return on the day the facility is placed in service, $240 million of credit against your tax liability. Inherent in all that, right? And, and obvious is you need extremely large taxpayers, right? Uh, that have giant bills that are willing to kind of invest in, in these types of transactions. And there are, you know, those... You mean you don't have that kind of tax liability yourself there, Sean? Right, right, right. <laughs> that you'd like. And there are those institutions. There are some very large institutions that are extremely active in, in wind and solar these days um, that are candidates for this type of thing. But it does kind of exhaust their ability to invest in onshore and, and other kind of uh, green kind of technologies if you sop it all up kind of just in an offshore deal. The PTC production tax credit, which is also available for offshore, is a credit that's generated as power is produced, right? As kind of the name suggests. And that credit runs for 10 years. And it may or may not equate kind of, it, it's probably actually going to be larger given kind of how strong the wind would be, the capacity offshore with respect to kind of wind and the production. So the PTCs are probably over the 10 year life of the PTCs in excess of the ITC, the 30% credit, but they come in over time. And when you're dealing with an extremely expensive asset, you know, time is not your friend. You really need to kind of come up with kind of enough of the resources to kind of pay all the construction costs and the, the, the turbine suppliers, the shipping, the infrastructure we've been talking about, all that type of thing. So the natural kind of 
thinking of folks on the developer side is that they prefer the ITC, they get all that money up front instead of having to wait for the 10 years for the ITC to be produced. So there's a bit of tension there. The investors would probably prefer the PTC because it doesn't use up so much of their tax capacity so quickly. So those are the two credits. The direct pay, if you're entitled to these credits, it doesn't matter if you're a tax investor or you're the developer, if you're entitled to these credits on the qualifying facility, you're entitled to treat uh, the credit as if it's a payment of tax and obtain a refund on your tax, more or less the basics. So it takes the pressure off of needing kind of that much a tax investor conceivably, uh, as well as kind of the tax capacity. The weakness with the direct direct pay is it's not instantaneous. It, It can take quite some time placed in service, the filing of a return. It could be as much as 24, it's probably not 24 months, but kind of 18 months type of thing of time delay. And you don't take advantage of a lot of the other tax benefits that come along with kind of an offshore wind facility depreciation. So what are the kind of companies or industries, and you mentioned how like right now you're kind of limited to the the firms that have this, this tax liability with direct pay. What kinds of companies or industries does direct pay kind of bring into the fold in terms of investing in, in all these renewable projects? It broadens the market just in terms of opportunity. The tax investors, the big investors kind of that have the tax capacity are still going to be incredibly active, but they've only got so much to spend, which leaves kind of on on kind of the numbers we were talking about at the outset, the the 30 gig, it it leaves a lot of those transactions wanting for tax equity uh, and it being a bottleneck. With the direct pay, those developers, at least, and, and the construction lenders into those projects can have confidence that, you know, once the facility is placed in service with this slight delay, let's say the 18 months or something like that, the cash will be coming into the transaction as it would have been with the tax equity investor. So it makes the, the market a lot of transactions that just may not have kind of gotten closed. Now you can kind of think about, you know, actually, we, we can do that transaction because we, we can um, have the model and the economics kind of um, all um, kind of support kind of the substantial investment. So it's on the developer side in a way, Sean, and the sponsor side. Those are the fellows that, you know, are going to most benefit from the direct pay in terms of just opportunity and not be holding, you know, held in need of a tax equity investor. I understand. So now I just want to pivot real quick. You know, we were talking earlier about, you know, the, the areas in the U.S. where, you know, the Interior Department and the Biden administration wants to build out offshore wind. And one of the things that caught my eye was that aside from the Pacific, a lot of those other areas, there is uh, either longstanding or, you know, more and more hurricane activity. And so research I've conducted, and again, this is the most recent recent thing I found was probably like 2017 in terms of the, the strength of wind turbines. You know, these offshore wind turbines can withstand like category three, maybe category four hurricanes. There's category five hurricanes that could come barreling through. And so how are these developers managing for risk like that? Because, I mean, the nightmare scenario is you, you, know, you build out this farm and a year later, a hurricane comes through and footage of a busted up turbine is looping on cable news over and over and over again. So, right, so right. what kind of thoughts being put into that, either in the deal structure or you know, how, how are developers, you know, like I said, managing that risk? So I, can, I can't really speak to the, the technology side of it and withstanding kind of the impact of, of, the, of the Category 5. What I can say, onshore, both... Uh, for solar and wind, we have been experiencing kind of 
some devastating storms and and where it, it really kind of started to kind of open some eyes and and they're kind of in, in some situations you know the one in 100 year events and now they're happening every five or ten years type of thing it is it's not only kind of revisiting kind of you know the quality of of your turbines or, or your solar installation or something like that what is what is available in the insurance market frankly and insurers have started to kind of step back increase the deductibles and in, increase their overall exposure with limits and such it, it's something that is is I think fair to say at this point, Sean, is still developing in, in terms of how the insurance community is, is going to kind of participate kind of on an ongoing basis. And then within the transactions, kind of where the risk is allocated. The investors that are just coming in to provide the monetization of the tax credits or something like that, obviously have their view and, and want to kind of require repairs and, and reconstruction if required. And the sponsors are, are just are, are just coming at this like you can't require me to rebuild an entire facility type of thing. That that's just not practical in the most extreme sense. Let's just kind of deal with the commercial and the business reality at, at the time. When this gets really super challenging, Sean, if an ITC is elected or even the direct pay, uh, there are recapture provisions that come along with those type things. So a facility, if a facility goes out of service within, say, the five years in which a facility is placed in service, uh, a recapture occurs. It, it's kind of on a declining basis. So here you have a bad storm. It's bad enough. And now you're faced kind of, you know, with recapture liability to the government on, on top of that. So the stakes are, are high. So you're right to focus on it. I, I don't know if anybody has kind of the elixir here to, to kind of suggest that this is the easy path. All right. Well, I appreciate you kind of at least laying out the, uh, not the technical side, but the legal side of things like that. So, and we spent a lot of time talking about offshore wind, but also, you know, you and the team at V&E. So, you know, what types of projects are you seeing the most interest in from clients? Like they're coming to you with questions about is it solar, wind, hydrogen. What's, what's the hot topic right now with new clients that come to you? We've got investors and, and developers in, in all types of energy, if you will. They're, they're, the questions are kind of dealing with just a whole, the whole energy transition spectrum, which is exciting and, and fun and everything like that. It's daunting kind of just in terms of where all of this is going to go. Obviously, offshore is, is as hot a topic as you can possibly imagine, just in terms of uh, the developers and sponsors and, and kind of the tax equity investors, just in terms of this, this is just inevitable, right? Wind and solar is still kind of pretty much we're flat out with respect to kind of helping investors, for the most part, investors finance those facilities. And now with kind of the legislative proposals, we've got another potential 10 years of, of, of those uh, in, in the future. Um, there's a tremendous amount of interest in, it's 45Q is, is kind of the, the tax code provision. It's carbon capture. Right. If you think about kind of historic clients of, of V&E and, and kind of the, the entire carbon intensive industry and the facilities and such, they are all trying to decide how they're going to become carbon neutral at some point in time and whether they can take advantage of, of the subsidies that are available in 45Q to, to capture carbon. So there's a tremendous amount of interest um, with respect to those type transactions. They're still still in the early stages, but those are happening. 
hydrogen is, is, if you think about how we're going to kind of become carbon neutral in the future, we need to deal with all the, the heavy transport industry, shipping, aviation, steel, cement. And the thinking is to an extent, hydrogen could contribute a, you know, a significant amount towards kind of becoming more carbon neutral. Again, that, that's something kind of down the road, but there's quite a bit of interest these days just in terms of the opportunity there. All right, and we were talking at the top of today's conversation about your relocation from California to, to Austin. And I saw when I was doing my research here that you're going to be teaching a class for the next generation of folks who are going to try to finance all this climate infrastructure. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. It, it, the course is, is basically a lot of what we've been talking about. The name of the course is Financing the Energy Transition, right? So if, if you think about this transition, kind of, and you start to kind of step back and kind of start to run the numbers on, on what is involved with the transition, it's trillions of dollars. It's anywhere estimates on the conservative side, let's just call it $50 trillion. And then on the more realistic, it's in the hundreds, $100 trillion to $150 trillion. Just staggering, right? That's larger than the U.S. capital market. It's larger than the, the world capital market, uh, just in terms of, you know, the U.S. equity market is $40 trillion. So just so you have points of reference kind of when you start playing with all those zeros. So how are we going to finance all of this stuff? And it, it's a lot of the things that we've been touching upon, right? Transitioning. Wind and solar are only contributing kind of 8% of, of kind of the, the energy usage kind of here in the United States at the moment. The thinking is that that needs to go to 45, 55% over the next 15, 20 years. So what, I, what I'm hoping for is to educate folks just in terms of how, you know, wind finance, solar finance works, offshore works, what the issues are, what they need to be mindful of, what opportunities exist, things that need to, to be fixed that, you know, hopefully they can lend a helping hand kind of with respect to improving the way we do things. But then also educating them on all of these other, you know, carbon neutral type things we've been talking about, right? We, we hit on hydrogen, we hit on carbon capture. We haven't talked about kind of all the innovative energy facilities that are part of proposed legislation, the nuclear facilities that are part of the proposed manufacturing facilities. All of these other things, it, the course is intended to just have folks open their eyes in terms of what's required and then what's involved with that financing and, and where they can kind of have a career or contribute one way or the other type of thing. Well, that sounds like an awesome class. And obviously, you know, you're dedicating your time there to educating the next generation of experts on how to, how to manage the energy transition. So let me just ask you this. Do you have any bold predictions about what the future of, you know, the renewable sector looks like in say 10 or 20, maybe 30 years down the road? I try to stay away from kind of the, the downside here if we don't get this right, because it's, it's pretty gruesome. I do believe and follow the science and, and it, you know, we can kind of see it around us just in terms of the powerful storms. So I'm, I'm of the mind that this has to happen and we have to do it kind of collectively. And we can't be just relying on kind of governments to provide. They, they can contribute and kind of maybe, maybe motivate behavior, but it's really all of us with respect to wanting to kind of improve the environment and preserve the environment. So it, it's a groundswell of activity that I believe this is, we have to do it and we will do it. That once we have the conviction and we have an issue that we understand kind of collectively, that we all work towards it. 
we see it with all of our clients. They, they've really kind of actively transitioned for the last five years, really. It, it's not just happening today, that seeing this coming, realizing what's involved and starting to position themselves to actually execute on the plan. So I'm, I'm very bullish that we'll pull it off. It, it's going to be a grind. There's a lot to occur. Hey, listen, I know we're about out of time. So I just want to thank you for all your insights today. I really appreciate it. I hope you continue to enjoy the, the, the new sights and sounds of Austin. It was my pleasure. Good talking to you, Sean. All righty. Well, that's our show for today. As I mentioned at the top, we're taking a break for the holidays. So I hope you get to enjoy some quality time with your loved ones. And I look forward to bringing you more episodes in 2022. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to SmartBrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of SmartBrief, a future company.